Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I have this thought in my head and I know it's a line from Brokeback Mountain, but I just, I just keep thinking like, why can't the U S quit Saudi Arabia, right? It's this way of phrasing it that gets stuck in my head over and over again, but it's also a pressing foreign policy problem in that the Saudi government is one of the more vicious regimes on the list of vicious regimes around the world. They're extremely repressive. Uh, Their foreign policy involves a series of atrocities in the region, most notably in Yemen, uh, where their uh, war has cost an untold number of lives, especially civilian lives, given the way that they've conducted it. it. It's a very difficult state for the United States, given its stated values to be aligned with. And yet somehow, the U.S. doesn't really make any moves to get out of this alliance. So today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about the interconnections between the United States and Saudi Arabia and why, despite everything, they can't, the U.S. can't seem to quit its very distasteful ally. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey! So which one is Saudi Arabia, Heath Ledger or Jake Gyllenhaal? Oh, uh, God, I, I don't remember well enough to be able to say which is which. Like, it's been a a long time since that movie came out. Worldly listeners, just so you know, none of us were prepared for Zach to go that that route in the intro. And uh, we're all very excited and surprised to hear that he went the Brokeback Mountain route for U.S.-Saudi policy. But we support it. Let's go. It's true. They both started laughing at me uh, partway through. I couldn't tell if I was laughing with or laughing at, so I had to, like, stop yes. talking for a Oh, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. And also, worldly <laughs> listeners, for, for those of you who might have been too young to remember or are not American and don't follow American pop culture, Brokeback Mountain was a famous love story about two cowboys played by Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. So, movie was a real cultural touchstone quite a few years ago, uh, and apparently I can't seem to quit Brokeback Mountain references either. But, look, this is a really exciting episode because in the second half, Jen has an interview with Senator Chris Murphy, who's one of the leading thinkers on foreign policy in Congress. That may sound like damning with faint praise, but Senator Murphy has really been out front on a lot of this stuff, and in particular has been a vocal critic of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And, And in that second half, 
Senator Murphy talks about his plan for reorienting and revising the U.S.-Saudi relationship. So stick around for that. But, but first, we're going to give you a little bit of grounding. I mean, Alex, maybe why don't you start talking a little bit about why it is that, that the United States got tangled up with Saudi Arabia in the first place? Sure. I mean, well, really, since 1945, the, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have had a kind of bargain, which was uh, Saudi Arabia would provide the U.S. with pretty cheap oil to run its economy, and the U.S. would provide weapons and protection and, and economic stimulus. And and over time, this this grew into sort of a, um, you know, oil for security partnership. Um, again, we would provide weapons, and, and they would help us, you know, fight against terrorists and, and counter Iran and all that, and we would take the oil. However, that has changed a bit in recent years, because now, as we've talked about on previous episodes, uh, the U.S. is now a, a major energy producer. And so that has lessened in terms of the oil for security trade, let's say. Um, you know, that that is no longer as big uh, an, an issue now. However, when you talk to people in, in any administration, Republican or Democrat, they'll say, look, the Saudis, for despite being, you know, unsavory characters in, in on many issues, they are still very helpful on, in many areas, including, again, buying our weapons, um, that gives a lot of money, um, countering Iran, trying to stabilize certain parts of the Middle East, whether that be, um, you know, sending money to to make northeastern Syria a, li- a bit better in Lebanon and elsewhere. And then, of course, they just give money to the American economy in general. And so, again, despite, you know, the, the Washington and Riyadh having tons of uh, problems over the years, lest we forget that a lot of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia causing strife in the relationship, at the end of the day, the U.S. has found that Saudi, on the whole, has been better than not as a partner um, because of all these other interests that the U.S. is pursuing, economic and security-wise. I don't know. Maybe I'm the uh, the, the resident Saudi hawk. Maybe the only thing I'll be the resident hawk on on this show. But I, it really strikes me, and I guess I tipped my hand earlier in the intro, right? That that a lot of the U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its original rationales, right? Like part of the early argument was that you need oil supplies from Saudi Arabia. Well, that's not really nearly as important given the way that the energy economy works uh, and the fact that the U.S. now is such a big oil producer domestically and given the shift to renewable energies, right? So that's not as important, right? Obviously, the Cold War origins of needing you know somebody to counter Soviet influence no longer apply. Uh, and so the argument is basically the U.S., without its close ties to Saudi Arabia, it leaves a regional vacuum that allows for Iran and other foreign powers to have more influence in the region, except does that justify the level of closeness we have with Saudi Arabia given the costs of the alliance? And I mean just both reputationally and human, right? A lot, a lot of people have died in the Yemen war. Saudi Arabia assassinated a U.S. resident, Jamal Khashoggi, who is a columnist for The Washington Post. The Biden administration announced, even after declassifying intelligence that was unequivocal, that Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, was responsible for this, it didn't do anything directly, right? It said they were not going to impose punishments on MBS, specifically in retaliation for this. It just seems like we're letting the Saudis get away with truly atrocious behavior on the basis of, I think, somewhat questionable assumptions about why we need Saudi Arabia today. Yeah, I want to push back a little bit on the argument that it's about, you know, U.S. maintaining U.S. access to Saudi oil and to Gulf oil more broadly. I would actually argue it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not as much just making sure that the U.S. in particular has access to this oil. It's also very much 
historically been about denying access to others, in particular the Soviet Union for a long time, and and now, you know, very much Iran and making sure that Iran isn't able to kind of dominate the oil kind of market in the region. Um, in particular, you know, the sanctions on Iran that are related both to human rights and to the nuclear program very much have, you know, hampered Iran's ability to be um, a significant player in the oil industry in the way that it could, given its reserves. And so I think, you know, it's a little bit facile, I think, to to just say that it's about U.S. oil and that the other side of that, which is that, well, now that we are a huge shale oil producer, et cetera, et cetera, that we don't need that. I think that calculation hasn't actually changed in the sense that, you know, the the kind of calculation of denying kind of influence, denying, you know, other kind of adversarial countries access there. I think that's very much still in play. The terrorism argument, I think, is is a little bit complicated too. Alex, you know, you rightly said that that today the U.S. Saudi relationship is about countering terrorism, but it very much is because of 9-11 that that is the case, that we see Saudi in any way, shape, or form as a partner in terrorism when they were, you know, one of the largest, you know, exporters of the extremist kind of Wahhabist ideology that motivated the 9-11 hijackers and and Al-Qaeda and to some degree ISIS. And so, you know, I think that relationship has certainly changed. Um, But it's also just, you know, logistics, right? We needed to be friends with Saudi to be able to operate in the region for things like the Iraq War, uh, for things like the Gulf War. So it's I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I think, you know, Saudi is very strategically located in the region. Um, so I don't think it's just U.S. oil. I think that's that's a bit too simplistic. So I just want to make sure our listeners understand what is at stake here or, or what was done. So after the Biden administration released the Khashoggi intelligence report, they announced a couple of things. One, which was uh, sanctions on 70 plus members of a, of a you know, kill team effectively who are a part of the plot against Khashoggi. You had uh, the creation of the Khashoggi ban, which is now a U.S. effort to pose, uh, impose visa restrictions on officials who go after dissidents uh, abroad, et cetera, et cetera. And no sanctions whatsoever on MBS, no punishment directly. And that's what people are focusing on, um, really, is because Biden during the campaign basically said, like, you know, Saudi Arabia is a pariah state and there's no redeeming value in this government and I'm going to go after the senior leadership. Well, that would mean Mohammed bin Salman as the crown prince, the king's son, and the de facto leader of the country. So this is what people are angry about, is that MBS himself seemed to have skirt, uh, you know, any any repercussion. That said, what the Biden team would tell you is that this is a recalibration, not a rupture of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And the reason they say that is because that they'll go, look, MBS used to have direct access basically to the Oval Office calling the president WhatsApping with Jared Kushner all the time. That is no longer the case. Uh, right now, MBS's direct American counterpart is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin because MBS is a defense minister. Um, they would they have said that, you know, basically there's no special relationship now between the U.S. and Saudi. It's just sort of like another country that's out there. Uh, we have frozen weapons, right? Uh, weapon sales, a, a decent amount of weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, and so if you think about it, what this team is is basically saying is that like, look, you know, Saudi is no longer a very important country to us. It is a partner and we need it to be a partner. Um, you know, we will still defend it, uh, you know, against Houthi attacks. We won't help them offensively. 
It's just there's been a downgrading of the relationship. And that, for them, counts as a larger punishment because, and I'll end this in a moment, is because, you know, of all the interests that we've talked about, the security interests, the economic interests, you know, MBS is already the de facto ruler, will inevitably be king unless something massive changes. So why end that relationship over the Khashoggi murder? There are larger interests at, at stake. Um, that's how the Biden team sees it, which, uh, you know, somewhat in an unsavory way puts them in line with how Trump saw the whole relationship. Trump was was basically like, I don't want to rupture this relationship because they pour a bunch of money to the American economy. Now, Biden has and his team have said this in a much nicer way, and they've done more. But anyway, that's 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 really what's going on here. Is the concern, I think, a bit oddly, is stuck on we didn't do too much on MBS without really looking at all the other things we've done. Because if you think about it as well, like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have done really bad things. We haven't sanctioned them either, but we have downgraded those relationships. And people don't really seem like all worked up about, well, why haven't we attacked them personally? So I will say, you know, in in the defense, and in no way do I mean to defend MBS or the Saudi regime, uh, which are- You do not under any circumstances got to hand it to them. Exactly. Uh, Just atrocious um, when it comes to human rights and all sorts of things. But sanctioning MBS, the fact that he literally is the defense minister and that we have U.S. troops- in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia right. would just logistically cause major headaches. But I think that gets back to the core question that, that Zach opened us with, which is, so why can't we we quit Saudi Arabia, right? So, okay, yes, that would cause logistical problems, but what if we just didn't have troops in Saudi Arabia, right? And so I think the, the question there, you know, I don't think you can look at this also without talking about Iran and, you know, in some you know, to some degree, Israel as well, and U.S. support for Israel, right? I think, you know, the Saudi-U.S. relationship and the Saudi-Israel relationship has really developed, you know, into an even stronger kind of partnership because, and, you know, in in order to counter the threat from Iran, both regionally and to Israel, you know, in the region and to the United States more, more broadly. And I think taking that out and not looking at the Iran kind of piece of this really misses a huge dynamic. Yeah. I, I What I like about that point, Jen, and this whole broader conversation about Saudi Arabia is it forces a more fundamental conversation, right? About like, what is the United States doing in the Middle East? What is the point of this large U.S. deployment there? And like, you know, one way to, to answer that question in the way that Jen was just doing is to say, well, countering Iran. But then the question becomes, why do we want to do that? Right? Like, why do we care about that? Why can't we let the Saudis and the Israelis handle that without as significant a U.S. deployment and, by necessity, as significant an amount of U.S. support for human rights abuses conducted by the Saudi regime, particularly, but also Israel, uh, in pursuit of these goals and other relevant domestic or regional goals? I think that's a really hard question. Uh, it's also one that is only increasingly being talked about in the U.S. I think since basically since the first Gulf War, uh, there's been a, a largely unexamined assumption in the D.C. foreign policy conversation, which I want to bracket from the like academic foreign policy conversation, which has been very, very, very different in terms of its area of focus. But I think a largely unexamined assumption that it is good for the United States to play a kind of more assertive, forward-deployed role in the Middle East, that we are good at guaranteeing regional stability and ensuring that global oil markets are safe 
ensuring uh, that no one power gets a hand up or a leg up in the region. Right? These are generally areas of competence for the United States. But since the Iraq War, there's been a lot of evidence that the United States, and at least through active involvement and management to the degree that it's done in the Middle East, has made things worse rather than better. And so you get an argument that maybe, you know, regional balancing could happen on its own without such a close U.S. relationship with an unsavory government like the Saudis. I'm not saying I agree with this fully. I, I agree with it in part, I guess. I think people who advocate this view, restrainers, often is like sort of the term in Washington right now, often go way too far in terms of like what like sort of rosy assumptions about what would happen in the absence of U.S. involvement. But the fundamental criticism I think is worth making. Like, why are we taking sides in the Saudi-Iranian dispute? What is the purpose of doing that? Well, to some degree, I would say part of that is Iran's fault in the sense that death to America is literally one of the raison d'etre of the Iranian regime. Uh, That tends to bring you, you know, bring you into the conflict when they are literally saying death to America. Uh, At the same time, you know, the U.S.-Israel relationship, again, Iran is very much interested in, in undoing the state of Israel and has very actively created militia groups in the region, specifically Hezbollah, uh, that has fought literal wars with Israel. And so I think it, it's not exactly just theoretical. Like, why do we not like Iran? Like, well, Iran super doesn't like us, first of all, and, you know, has done some pretty provocative things. Uh towards the United States. To be fair, we have done some pretty provocative things to them as well, such as overthrowing a democratically elected leader at one point. But, you know, I think more generally, you know, again, you can't look at Saudi without looking at Iran, and you can't look at Iran without looking at Israel. And so I think, you know, trying to to take the Saudi relationship qua the United States as a kind of unitary entity here is problematic because, you know, it it overlooks a lot of the history, right, of going back, like you said, to the Gulf War, going back to the Iraq War, right? There's a lot of, you know, important kind of interest there. And specifically, you know, with Iran, the U.S. also has a vested interest in nonproliferation and trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And the reason, the main, if not the only reason that the U.S. ended up supporting Saudi's war in Yemen was to get them on side and stop vocally complaining about the Iran deal. So again, I think there are vested U.S. interests in the region and having Saudi Arabia, you know, on on our side, if you want to put it that way, for some of these things has proven to be strategically useful. Now, morally, you know, yes, reprehensible, absolutely. But I think the strategic calculation has been pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I will... I will dedicate this next section using another Brokeback Mountain line, which is, if you can't fix it, Jack, you got to stand it. Um, so, like, like for, I find the restraining argument fascinating in the sense that, like, they want out of the Middle East. They don't want American engagement. But if you want to pursue any U.S. interest in the Middle East, you kind of need Saudi Arabia. And, like, right, as, as, as we've been describing, if you want to counter Iran, if you want to keep Israel safe, if you— you don't want to have some troops in the region, not many, but like if you're looking for American interests to be advanced, take take Saudi Arabia out of the equation. What do you have left? You have some other countries, of course, but like Saudi Arabia is a major player in that region. And so you're effectively like if you rupture 
the Saudi Arabia relationship. Then you're either scrambling to find something else or you're just fine letting that region go the way it goes without your input. Um, that I find a, not a great thing to do. And like the, this, it, and, it, and it sucks to say that because let's be clear, I mean, what's different about this issue and why we're talking about it so passionately and a bunch of people are, is that, you know, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia did order the killing of a U.S. resident. That is different. That is new. And that is why it feels almost like a personal attack on the United States that, that as much as we care about the Saudi relationship in general, they don't seem to care about or respect it as much as we do. But again, you have to make that calculation in your head. These are the tough, horrible choices in foreign policy. You know, do you forego or weaken your ability to obtain interests, many of which are economic and security in the Middle East, over Khashoggi's murder? And it's unsavory and it sucks to say, but you're probably not. And I can't, I would imagine most administrations, Republican or Democrat, feel that same way. And clearly the Biden team made that assessment after reviewing what the Trump team had had thought. Yeah, I mean, that is true if you assume that like active U.S. deployment in the region and like close involvement with Saudi Arabia is the best way to safeguard American interests in the way that you're describing them. But what if it's not, right? Like Saudi Arabia is an extremely wealthy oil state. Israel is by far the most powerful military force in the region, and it doesn't really need American military aid at this point to maintain its military edge, at least the degree of military aid that the U.S. provides right now is probably not necessary uh, for Israel, given its domestic economy and the the real proven strength of the IDF as a fighting force to protect itself. Plus, it has a nuclear deterrent, which no other state in the Middle East currently has, though they don't say they have it. So if, if our views, right, our concerns about U.S. interests are making sure the oil is flowing, well, that's in Saudi's interest, making sure that Israel is safe, well, Israel is doing a pretty good job of maintaining that on its own, uh, and in limiting Iranian influence, while well, the Saudis and the Israelis have their own interests in doing so, and they have the financial and military capabilities to do that on their own without active U.S. involvement, what does the United States gain by virtue of maintaining such a close relationship with these countries, right? You can make the argument that some elements of this alliance, for instance, not being willing to go after the Saudis more aggressively, not only hurts U.S. reputational credibility in terms of our ability to condemn human rights in other places, but also actively makes us involved in doing horrific things to people in the Middle East, which in turn makes us much less credible and popular among different states in the Middle East, which is really important if we're concerned about the promotion of democracy in the region, we're concerned about not providing credibility to the Iranian narrative that the United States is some kind of neo-crusader power bent on destroying Islam and killing Muslims, which is also the Al-Qaeda-ISIS narrative, right? So if we're concerned about terrorism, especially given that Saudi Arabia has promoted extremist ideologies for quite some time, maybe it would be better if we limited and distanced ourselves from Gulf monarchies and other authoritarian states like Egypt. Maybe if we're more hands-off, the, the region can come to a balance on its own that secures the basic goods that, that you two have outlined in this conversation without such direct and counterproductive U.S. involvement. Sorry, let me provide a very concrete example of why I think people are siding with the like keep the relationship going argument. 
nuclear weapons, right? Because Saudi Arabia has shown an interest in nuclear development, and many people are worried that it's going to get a nuclear weapon if the U.S. doesn't have, basically doesn't protect it uh, writ large. Um, and so if you don't like the U.S.-Saudi relationship now, you're definitely not going to like it when Saudi Arabia has a nuclear weapon. And what that could lead to an arms, and how that could lead to an arms race in the Middle East, especially if, you know, we're not countering Saudi, as, if we're not working with Saudi to counter Iran as much, um, obviously Israel will be like, what the heck, guys? Um, so this is part of the problem. And I think part of the calculus is like, you know, the, one of the trades that we do here is Saudi, right, gives us money for stuff. And we're like, we'll basically protect you. Hence the Yemen thing. We're not going to do offensive operations, but we will protect you against Houthi attacks. That's smaller, but that's basically like, we, they are sort of under our security umbrella. If they don't feel that umbrella and it starts raining, they're going to perhaps pursue that, that nuclear weapon. And that's sort of one of the big fears here. Now, some people would say that Saudi holding American policy hostage. Yeah, probably. Um, but do you, would you rather be held hostage? Would you rather Saudi Arabia have a nuclear weapon? These are the choices that are that are part of this whole discussion. Zach, your point, I think, is fair to some degree in terms of Israel and Saudi Arabia being able to counter Iran on their own. In some ways, I, I could see that maybe being a, a fair argument, except very big hole in that, which is naval power. <laughs> the the Israelis and the Saudis, neither of them have a very strong navy. And sure, you know, by by pulling out U.S. naval assets, uh, you could theoretically force the Saudis to become a stronger naval power, but that's not something you can really do overnight. And very much the fact that the U.S. is involved specifically in the Strait of Hormuz goes back especially to the tanker wars uh, during the Iran-Iraq war. And the the need for U.S. naval ships to literally escort tankers going through the region because the Iranians kept bombing the tankers. So, you know, I think just saying that the U.S. should remove troops kind of generally sounds good in theory from the region. But when you actually look at what those troops are doing, where they are, right, are, you know, do you want to get rid of U.S naval assets in the region. What are you going to do? Are you going to get rid of those bases? Are you going to try to have sea basing capabilities? We currently do not have to the degree that would allow us to continue to do the full range of functions that we have. I, I think there are real questions about the ability of those countries to do the broader range of, of activities. Now, you can argue that the U.S. shouldn't be doing those activities. Fine. But somebody's got to protect those tankers because Iran's not going to stop doing that. I mean, they literally keep doing this all the time, interdicting tankers going through the region. And one of the concerns is that if they were to you know, continue to do that and escalate it, it would cause a major rupture in global oil prices and stability. And so somebody needs to be the guarantor there. Saudi's naval capabilities are not going to do it. The Chinese are developing naval bases, you know, a naval base in Djibouti nearby, but they're not in any way, shape, or form currently capable of playing that role to the degree the U.S. is. So I think there, you're not going to see the Israelis and the Saudis really stepping up their game. So, Jen, I think that's a really good point, um, and I think it's one of the weaknesses in the restrainer case that I've been pressing so far, is that there's not a good transition proposal, right? It's just generally taken as, in the argument that I've been adopting, not quite for the sake of argument, because it's kind of closer to my views, but not fully, right, What I what I think. One of the weaknesses is that it's, they don't have a good account of how to get from point A to point B, right, from a world in which the U.S. is playing this really active role to one in which it's it's basically not involved in the Middle East at all without in the interim there being significant amounts of chaos. 
What I like about the arguments is they force us to think more seriously about what can and can't be provided by specific U.S. deployments as they currently exist. So, like, the point about keeping the sea lanes open is, like, a really just generally strong argument for U.S. forward military deployment and military hegemony throughout the world. Um, If you hear some screaming, that's because my baby just showed up. Um, I apologize. She has woken up. But right now she's not screaming. She's very happy. Anyway, uh, I think that that that's right. There's a question of recalibrating, right, of whether – this, the degree to which we have aligned ourselves with the Saudi quest to uh, deal with Iranian forward deployments throughout the region is beneficial. Yemen is, to me, the, the sort of paradigmatic case, right? Like, we maybe could have just dealt with the Saudis whining about the Iranian nuclear deal without having to help them murder thousands of people, which is essentially what the United States has done there. Uh, I think it's probably the case that the U.S., turned a blind eye to some of their activities in Syria that ended up aiding extremist groups in that region, partially because of the tightness of the U.S. alliance. And more broadly, uh, I mean, Iran isn't just saying death to America in a vacuum, right? They're not just like, we hate the United States because we hate the United States, right? It's that the more aggressively the U.S. acts and treats Iran as its enemy, going back to um, the toppling of Mossadegh, right? Which... You can debate the extent to which the U.S. was involved in this coup in the 50s in Iran and the extent to which U.S. action was responsible for Mossadegh's uh, toppling. But there's a long history there that leads to this being popular. And if the U.S. soft pedals or back pedals from its hostility towards Iran and its tightness with Iran's regional enemies, it's possible the Iranians might be less angry at the United States. Uh, it's, It's just... It is a difficult question, and I'm not convinced that the Biden administration's rebalancing approach goes nearly far enough from where we've been in the past. It, it might not go far enough, but it's gone further than most administrations have. I mean, like, again, let's be clear, the end of support for, for Yemen operations, the freezing of weapons, you know, the, the downgrading of a crown prince's general standing, or at least standing over the last four years in the U.S., the sanctioning of some pretty high-level folks in the country, not the most high-level folks, but some, that's pretty harsh for U.S.-Saudi relations in in history. And I think perhaps one more thing uh, that's, I think there's going to be a norm change. It used to be that the U.S. really only criticized Saudi's internal politics on sort of two issues. One was Wahhabism bad, stop teaching that and exporting that, and like let women drive. Uh, And that was kind of the extent of our human rights discussions. And now you're seeing at least this administration, um, and allowing a bunch of other Democrats and some Republicans being like, you guys are bad on a lot of stuff. And it used to be that that was sort of taboo to say because we were worried about, you know, would would Saudi Arabia not want to be our friends anymore? And if that norm has gone away, if it is becoming at least more acceptable to criticize internal Saudi society and, and, and politicking, then it becomes a more normal relationship. Then it's like, okay, well, on the stuff where our interests align— you know, we will work together, and there's a lot of areas where interests align. But on the human rights stuff, you know, we're going to call you out. Um, and again, we've done that in general, but it's more forceful now. And that, I think, is a decent change and one that I hope continues. But I, I still think that you, and I think it's completely fair to say the recalibration of the Biden administration hasn't gone far enough. That is totally fair. Um, but there has been a recalibration. And I, I defy anyone to find me another administration since 1945, especially, who has downgraded the relationship as much. Uh, so we're going to take a quick 
break here. And with all that in mind, I really hope you stick around for Jen's conversation with Senator Murphy because what he does is he takes some of the themes that we've been discussing in sort of broad strokes here and tries to turn them into a very specific policy proposal for how to reorient the U.S. relationship with the Saudis and, and Gulf monarchs in general. Uh, it, it shows how tricky and difficult managing a transition away from Saudi Arabia might be in practice, but also makes a forceful case for why it's worthwhile. Take a listen after the break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So, Senator Chris Murphy, welcome to Worldly, and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. So in a recent article in Foreign Affairs, uh, you laid out a, a fairly comprehensive new U.S. strategy toward the Gulf. And that's really what I want to chat with you about today. Um, it's a very you know, ambitious kind of new way of looking at U.S. foreign policy goals and approach to, to the Gulf in particular. Um, and you say it's to create a more substantive and stable link between the U.S. and the GCC countries. So for our listeners, a reminder, that's the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. So Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, or UAE. So we're going to link to your piece in Foreign Affairs in the show notes so our listeners can actually read the full thing um, so they don't have to just rely on my quick summary here. Um, and, and I'll summarize some of the key points in the questions as we go along. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, so you argue that the first step in this new strategy should be for the U.S. to disengage from what you say the GCC proxy wars with Iran, and you say specifically in Yemen, in Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria. So I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit because when we look at it a little closer, you know, Yemen in particular is is really kind of one of the the places where the U.S. was actually involved in supporting specifically a GCC proxy war with Iran. But, you know, there's there's no proxy war in Lebanon that U.S. forces are engaged in. Um, you know, the, the U.S. troop presence in Iraq is mostly meant to, you know, counter ISIS. That's a counter ISIS mission. Same thing with Syria. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration has just now ended offensive support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. So I wanted to get your thoughts kind of on where you actually see the problematic U.S. involvement in proxy wars today, right now, and kind of going forward. 
Sure. Well, uh, listen, I, I make the argument in this piece that we've got to right-size the relationship for today. Um, back in the 1970s and 1980s, the United States was essentially running on oil that came from the Gulf. That is simply not the case today. We um, import less oil today than we create domestically. And of the oil that we import, a really small share of that comes from the Gulf. And so we created the security guarantee for Gulf countries 40 years ago, um, when if the Gulf was under attack, then the U.S. economy would go into lockdown. Um, that just isn't the case today. We import more oil from Mexico than we import from Saudi Arabia. And so I think it's important to understand that context when I make the argument that we don't need to be as engaged in these proxy wars. The reason that we are engaged in proxy wars very often is to support GCC countries. That's why we were involved in the Saudi side of the uh, Yemen war. Um, and so the proxy wars I'm talking about are both hot wars and cold wars. Um, the hot wars are Yemen uh, and Syria, and to an extent, Libya, which is not sort of the, the same proxy war Iran against the Sunni nations in Libya. It's much more confusing. Uh, and, you know, a cold, an example of a cold war would be either um, uh, Lebanon or Iraq, which is both hot and cold at times. Um, and to me, A, it just doesn't matter as much as people would think to the United States, whether one side or the other ultimately wins the contest for regional hegemony in the Middle East, the Turks or the Saudis or the Iranians. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter as much as it did 40 years ago. Um, but second, you know, we have all sorts of experience uh, since the Iraq war about the efficacy of U.S. military involvement in the region. And what we have found is that our presence there um, often draws uh, extremists into the region, often becomes recruiting material for groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. And so the deeper we're involved in these proxy wars, I, I think the longer they sometimes last because U.S. presence is escalatory, not de-escalatory. Uh, and again, I'm just not sure that we have the interests we used to have when it comes to, you know, whether the Saudis or the Iranians win. Sure. So and, and in particular, you know, um, when it comes to Syria and Iraq, um, you know, as I said, a, a lot of that is mostly just focused on the counter ISIS mission. Is that something that you still think the U.S. should be actively engaged in? Or do you think that, that the Biden administration or, you know, future administrations, do you think we should pull back on that in particular or reduce troop levels? How do you see that kind of conflict? Well, listen, I think we still have to be involved in the fight against ISIS. And part of my argument is that we should get out of Yemen because ISIS has been getting stronger over the years as the Yemen civil war has persisted. And so I think there are actions we're taking in the region um, that is, frankly, expanding uh, the efforts of ISIS um, or aiding their recruitment efforts. I think inside Syria, um, our actions, by and large, extended that civil war, which, again, gave operating space to ISIS. So um, I, I think if we are taking the fight directly to ISIS, um, I, I think that's a worthy endeavor. I don't think it's actually presently authorized by Congress. So I don't think the administration can pursue those efforts without coming to Congress and getting an updated war authorization. It's all the other fights that we've been involved in against Bashar al-Assad, against the Houthis, um, that I 
don't believe are in U.S. national security interests, I don't believe are authorized by Congress. Uh, and I would argue that the Biden administration should look to end. Got it. Um, so uh, another one of the the planks of your your strategy, um, you say that U.S. should basically stop selling offensive weapons and military equipment to the GCC countries. Um, that you do say for sure that we should continue and perhaps you know uh, increase selling defensive capabilities, defensive weapons to those countries. Um, and I, I know you've addressed this uh, in the piece briefly. Uh, and in, I, I saw you speak uh, recently on, on on this argument uh, at one of the think tank events. I'm not sure which one. I don't remember, unfortunately. Um, but you know, the main argument against that, as you acknowledge, um, you know, would be that those countries would simply turn to Russia and China for those offensive weapons if the U.S. were to cut it off. So, so what is your response to that argument, kind of more broadly? Well, first of all, I mean, I am comfortable selling defensive weapons to our allies, but only under certain circumstances. I mean, I just don't think we should be in the business of selling major offensive systems to countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE that are actively using them in theaters that uh, where hostilities don't accrue to the benefit of the United States or transferring those weapons to really bad actors. UAE, for instance, has a history of sending you know, both offensive and defensive weapons uh, into Libya uh, and to uh, very dangerous extremist militias inside Yemen. Um, but I, to the extent that I am comfortable down the road sending defensive systems, um, I, I do think that we you know, have to understand uh, that this is a bit of a red herring, that um, if we're not in the business of selling offensive weapons, the Chinese or the Russians will fill the void. First of all, there's no substitute for the capability of U.S. systems, and it would be a massive project for any of our Gulf partners to essentially reorient their defensive posture or their offensive posture so as to integrate Russian systems. Russian systems aren't as good, and it would be wildly expensive um, to bring them in. Second, Russia's going to be um, a tooth and nail competitor uh, to the Gulf uh, as oil revenues continue to decline. Uh, and all of a sudden, the Russians and the Gulf nations are scrambling to try to um, gather up as big a share of the declining world oil market as they can. Um, I don't know that you want to be in business with your primary economic competitor um, when it comes to your own nation's security. And the Chinese, um, they are just not interested in getting involved in security guarantees in the Middle East. Maybe they will be 30 or 40 years from now, but right now they want to be economic partners. The Chinese Navy is not coming to the defense of Saudi Arabia uh, anytime soon. So I just don't think any of those countries are going to get the kind of security partnership offers from the Chinese that, you know, some of the sky will fall um, folks suggest if the United States pulls back. So my, my, my uh, case here is that we can afford to drive a harder bargain, um, even when it comes to defensive weapons, because I just don't believe these countries are going to um, say, hey, we're not going to uh, make civil uh, domestic political reforms because we're very comfortable with um, weaning ourselves off of U.S. security assistance and turning to Russia. I just don't think that's going to happen. Sure. So I, I want to push back a little bit on the Russia part in particular, but a bit on China too. You know, so first of all, you know, to be fair, Russia's defense industry is, you know, one tech intensive sector where the country actually holds an international leadership position. Um, 
you know, Russian weaponry is actually relatively inexpensive, especially compared to U.S. weapon systems. It's often actually more robust than a lot of its U.S. counterparts in specific sectors. Um, in some cases, technologically, uh, they, they can't compete. But I think in a lot of ways, um, in particular in terms of firepower, they do actually pretty well. Uh, I'm sure you know Russia has already sold missile systems to the UAE. They sold military rifles to, to the kingdom, to Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, uh, and on the, the kind of issue of the falling oil prices, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, but if you if you look at, at Moscow's kind of approach toward the Middle East, you know, one of the ways it's looking to actually shore up its kind of revenue streams from the declining oil prices is by actually expanding arms sales big time into the Middle East, looking at, to that as a kind of supplement. So I guess I kind of wonder there, you know, there's the kind of concern that, you know, on top of the the fact that the systems are actually relatively inexpensive, that they're robust, they, they also come with fewer strings attached, right? So, you know, the U.S., I, you know, to our credit, I would very much say, uh, has, you know, limits on what you can do with U.S. weapons, you know, no secondary sales, ostensibly. Those kind of limits don't don't come with Russian weapons. Um, you know, they also are delivered a lot faster because they don't have to go through our, our bureaucracy so I kind of, you know, I feel like maybe dismissing Russia is a little unfair, given that they are very much, you know, actively trying to to expand in that market. And also, you know, if you look at it, our influence, you know, U.S. influence and pressure is one of the the few reasons that the Saudis and, and the Emiratis in particular haven't actually gone further with purchasing Russian weapon systems. So, I mean, two two responses. One, I don't doubt that the Russians have a have an interest in selling more weapons into the region. My point is, I think the Saudis and the Emiratis, who do understand the future trajectory of their oil sales, who do understand that they need a much more diversified economy, are going to be reluctant uh, to pin themselves to Russia as a security partner rather than the United States, because um, let's just be honest, if they turn their back on the United States when it comes to the security partnership, we're not going to be interested in being the kind of potential economic partners that they would like over the next 20 to 30 years. And um, there is no way to diversify Saudi Arabia or UAE's economy without an economic partnership with the United States. So I think that is just a chilling factor on the Gulf's interest in essentially forsaking the United States as a security partner and turning to the Russians. And, and second, you are right that we put these um, conditions on our weapons sales, conditions that have been regularly violated by the yeah. Saudis and the Emiratis. Fair enough. The question is, you know, do you want to be in business with a partner who uses your weapons to bomb school buses inside Yemen, or in the case of the Emiratis, um, openly transfers the weapons and the, and the vehicles you give them to Salafist-aligned militias inside Yemen. So conditions are great when your partners um, you know, abide by them, but when they don't, I think there's a question as to whether you are just better off letting them go um, and buying their weapons from somebody else. Sure. And you know, I wanted to, um, just on the, the China question quickly, you know, again, China has sold military drones to Saudi and UAE, and I, I absolutely take your point. I think that there's a very, you know, big difference between selling military hardware, uh, especially something like drones, compared to having your navy, you know, defend Bahrain, for instance, if it were attacked. Um, at the same time, you know, China did build its first ever permanent overseas military base, a, a big naval base 
in Djibouti, right across Babel Mendeb, you know, from Yemen. Um, and they have actually participated very much in, if not security guarantees, but in, in definitely in, uh, you know, security support systems for tankers um, and those kinds of missions, uh, in particular in the Strait. And so, you know, I guess I kind of wonder, is there a concern there in terms of strategic competition with China, the fact that, you know, that base can potentially house up to 10,000 Chinese troops, it can ostensibly hold their new aircraft carriers, assault carriers, uh, could probably accommodate up to four of their nuclear-powered submarines. Is that a concern at all when it comes to the broader U.S. competition with China in the region, the fact that they are rapidly expanding, including during the COVID pandemic, they haven't stopped work on the base. Is that a concern at all for you? Well, it's a concern. I I just, and again, I'm admitting that um, it is not implausible that at some point down the line, the Chinese are interested in getting involved with the Gulf at the level we are today. I just don't think in the foreseeable future, they're going to be able to offer any of the kinds of security guarantees, implicit or explicit, that uh, that we do. Um, listen, there's a broader question to ask here as the United States becomes less and less reliant on oil from the Gulf and the Gulf becomes more and more of um, a supplier of energy to China. Um, you know, I mean, that's the reality right now, right? Is that right now China is the primary customer of the Gulf, not the United States. We were involved in a security guarantee in the Gulf for decades because of our oil partnership. Um, so, you know, query whether or not the Chinese should be more responsible for maintaining security in the Gulf rather than the United States if the product there matters more to them uh, than to us. Um, I I don't know that I have the answer to that. But again, I just think it's really important for us to remember why we were involved in that region to begin with. It's not just oil, right? We have had and still have a longstanding commitment to the security of uh, of Israel. Um, But the Chinese are going to be the primary customers of the Gulf. They are going to be more involved in the region because the oil there matters more to them. I don't know that that's in their long-term interest to have oil from a fairly destable place, unstable place, um, be so important to them. We're just smart as a nation if we are pursuing a policy to make ourselves more reliant on domestic sources of renewable energy. Sure. Um, So I want to get to to one of the other parts of this kind of related, um, you argue that that the U.S. should reduce military basing in the Gulf, um, you know, and I think specifically you suggested reconsidering the costs and benefits of basing the Fifth Fleet uh, in in Bahrain um, would be a good place to start. Uh, I believe you also mentioned Al-Udaid Air Base in, in your talk recently, but focusing on the Fifth Fleet basing, you know, um, This is not a a new kind of suggestion, right? This is something that has been actually reconsidered over and over again. These considerations have been kind of looked at. Um, And, you know, every time the U.S. has come to the conclusion, and analysts independently as well, that the benefits actually vastly outweigh the cost, that that relocating the Fifth Fleet would be a massive logistical nightmare, first of all, um, and would actually end up costing tens of billions of dollars and, and would essentially just leave the U.S. stuck trying to replicate that base somewhere else in the region and starting to kind of rebuild it all over again, you know, from scratch. Um, of course, it would also, I'm sure, you know, make Iran incredibly happy to, to have the U.S. evacuating or, or leaving from, from Bahrain. Iran, uh, for listeners, uh, Iran has had territorial claims to Bahrain since the British occupied it in the early 1800s. Um, and, and, you know, going back to the kind of security issue of our, our allies, uh, you know, 
moving the Fifth Fleet, moving our our you know naval CENTCOM base from Bahrain would also potentially undermine the actual commitment that you're saying to our GCC allies in the sense that we would literally have to you know move <laughs> remove the the Patriot missile batteries that actually protect Bahrain and to some degree Saudi Arabia. So I guess my question here, you know, given all of those very real costs, what are the benefits that you actually see from from reconsidering and relocating the U.S. Fifth Fleet? Well, in the piece, I I certainly preview that the first thing you should consider is the Fifth Fleet, um, but I would likely make the argument uh, that that's the beginning, not the end. Um, I, I think that we need to just have a tough conversation about our military footprint in the region um, and whether that footprint is more trouble than it's worth. Um, yes, it is always expensive um, in the short run to um, move troops, um, but we have been uh, talking in Washington for um, you know now a decade about the need to spend more time focusing on Asia or the Africa or the Western Hemisphere and less time focusing on the Middle East. Part of the reason that we focus on the Middle East is because that's where our troops are. Um, and so if you begin a process of demilitarizing uh, the U.S. presence in the Gulf, um, I would suggest that you are going to actually move assets permanently out of that region to other regions, places that are more important to the United States today. Um, so in the long run, I, I think it's part of what allows Washington to be able to sort of reorient um, our priorities towards other places. Second, um, you know, I think there is tremendous downside to continuing to have this kind of presence there. Our troops um, throughout the region um, are sitting ducks. As we speak today, we are uh, talking once again about another rocket attack on U.S. troops in Iraq. Um, We have uh, been talking over the past few years about the Russians targeting U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Um, When we have so many troops deployed to dangerous places without adequate protection, they become targets and they drag and those attacks on our troops drag us into these retaliatory cycles that are not good for anybody. Um, In addition, our troops end up being, as I mentioned before, recruitment fodder for extremist groups. And they force us often to look the other way when it comes to the brutal treatment of regimes against their own people. Bahrain is a perfect example, right? Bahrain, over the past five years, um, their human rights record has gotten worse, not better, with respect to their treatment of the Shia population. Um, And if we really want to rebrand the United States in the world, if we want to be able to recover from the last four years of Donald Trump and be a leader again when it comes to human rights uh, and democracy promotion, um, then we shouldn't be so wedded, so embedded with these brutal anti-democratic regimes in the region. And, And I'm telling you, that's what happens when we have troops inside Qatar, inside Bahrain, inside Kuwait. Uh, inside, um, you know, uh, I mean, we have troops in Lebanon, we have troops all throughout the region. We often are forced to look the other way when it comes to the bad things that those governments do. So for that reason alone, I think it's important for us to reorient. And as I mentioned in the piece, 
We just shouldn't buy the foreign policy consensus in Washington that we need all these troops to protect our interests. Almost all of these bases uh, and, and our troop number and our troop level numbers um, are post 9-11 creations. Um, we didn't have this footprint in the Middle East in the 1980s or the 1990s, and we pretty adequately protected our interests there uh, without these bases. Sure. Well, I mean, to be fair, in the 1980s, it, it Iraq in particular uh, helped uh, counter Iran in in the region. Uh, you know, so to be fair, we we kind of uh, 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 I guess bear a little bit of responsibility for the fact that we removed that. Um, but, um, but, Jen- but Jennifer, to, to press back for a second, I mean, I also am making the, the point in this piece. Um, we should right size our worry uh, about Iranian influence in the region. Right, Iran is our adversary. Right, we sh- we sh- we should be interested in trying to reduce their influence uh, in the region, um, but often our troops inside the region and, and our military activity in the region has done exactly the opposite of our stated policy. Right, it's 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 our troops in. Syria and our military involvement in Syria that has lengthened that civil war and has ultimately made Bashar al-Assad more reliant on Iranian support. It was the Iraq war itself that um, allowed Iran to uh, essentially enter uh, Iraq and, and and grow their influence. So, you know, again, it's, it, it's our long history of military involvement in the region, I would argue, and others would argue the opposite side, that has actually expanded Iran's influence. I just don't think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this massive surge of U.S. military presence in the Middle East over the last 20 years has resulted in Iran being weakened. In fact, I would make the argument to the opposite. Sure. Um, last question. I know. I know you have to go. You're a very busy man. <laughs> um, so, you know, if I'm sitting in Riyadh uh, or Manama or you know any of the the kind of Arab Gulf capitals, uh, or honestly, if I'm if I'm sitting in Tehran, uh, a lot of this, you know, huge kind of rethink of U.S. military presence in the Gulf, in particular, and some of these strategic bases that have actually done a pretty good job, particularly in Bahrain, uh, of, you know, keeping Iran from trying to, you know, <laughs> literally attack Bahrain and Saudi uh, directly. Um, you know, all of this kind of pulling back of offensive arms, um, pushing the the Saudis and, and the other Gulf countries, um, you know, on, on human rights issues, all of this, you know, if I'm in these capitals, looks a lot like a big Iranian wish list, right? The, these are all things that Iran would really very much like for the U.S. to do. They have long wanted the U.S. out of Bahrain. They have long wanted the U.S. to pull back its security guarantees. So I guess my question finally here is, you know, what is your answer for that? If you're addressing these countries, how does giving Iran a whole kind of wish list of all the things that it very much would like to see and, you know, on top of trying to reenter the Iran deal, which would end up lifting a lot of U.S. sanctions on the country, how does that um, help our allies feel more secure? How does that promote stability in the region? I mean, what do you say to to the argument that that looks very much like a, what Iran would very much like the United States to do? Yeah, you know, my responsibility is U.S. security. Um, my responsibility is not Saudi security. My responsibility is not Emirati security. To the extent that the United States cares about those countries, it's because there are um, important U.S. equities involved in the protection of those nations. And the argument I've made for the last several years is that we need to dramatically rethink 
whether it matters to us as much as it used to or as much as it should uh, as to whether Iran or the Saudis end up winning the war in the Middle East for regional hegemony. You are suggesting it is a just rock solid U.S. interest to always protect the Gulf side of that equation. And that if the Iranians increase their influence and the Saudis' influence is decreased, that is unquestionably bad for the United States. I don't know that that's the right answer. I, I, again, I've, I've made this case before. I didn't necessarily expound on it in my piece. Um, but the primary um, extremist threat to the United States today is not Shia extremism. It is Sunni extremism, right? And, and Sunni extremism is, has grown all over the world because of the export from the Gulf countries, from Saudi Arabia, of a form of Wahhabi Salafist Islam that is deeply intolerant um, and has been unfortunately used to pervert the religion into things like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Sure. And we have largely been sort of giving the Saudis a pass on that over the years. And so I, I'm just making the argument that, um, well, yes, I think we would, yes, we would prefer the Saudi side to prevail because of the declining oil revenues, because of the uh, recent tendency of the Gulf countries to use U.S. military support to commit human rights crimes, and because of their, uh, I think, very unfortunate export of a brand of Islam that helps build extremist groups, yeah, um, they are bad gonna... actors as, 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 as well. Maybe oh, not absolutely. as bad an actor as Iran, but, but bad actors. Yeah, I guess, uh, and I very much take your point. I just want to, you know, when we're talking about human rights in particular, I know that's a big concern for yours, you know, to your eternal credit. It's, I, I don't think we have enough uh, people in Congress or in the U.S. in particular focusing on human rights. So thank you for your, your advocacy there. Um, but I think, you know, looking at Iranian influence, I mean, Shia extremism may not be a direct threat to the United States, but it's certainly a massive threat to human rights. I mean, if you look at the assassination of Lukman Slim in Lebanon, you know, you, you talk about the, you know, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, that's a very similar situation. You have massive human rights violations, you know, targeted killings, torture by these very Shia extremist groups. Does that concern you that, that they're potentially getting stronger would deeply dent the ability to promote human rights? It, it, it does. Um, it does. And the argument that I'm making is that we we often make it sort of seem as if um, uh, it is Iran's support for terrorist groups that presents the direct threat to the United States when it has been indirect um, support from the Gulf to terrorist organizations that probably is the more immediate concern for the United States. And again, I, I, my argument here is that de-escalation should be our goal. And so increased an increased military footprint in the United States, increased U.S. involvement in active theaters like uh, Yemen and Syria is escalatory in my mind. And, and that escalation over the past 20 years has emboldened uh, Iran, has increased their influence. And so um, I posit that if the United States withdraws from Yemen, withdraws from Syria, reduces its military footprint in the region, Yes, you can make an argument that um, that is on Iran's wish list. I can also make an argument to you that that can help begin 
a de-escalatory cycle in the region where there are less active conflicts between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I can argue that that then positions the United States as an honest, as a more honest broker to try to achieve some kind of regional settlement between Iran and Saudi Arabia that would be good for both parties in the long run. Um, so I just don't have a lot of evidence in front of me that U.S. military in presence in the region um, has accrued to the benefit of U.S. security or has led to the decreased influence of Iran in the region. I argue that it's time to try something new. Senator Murphy, thank you so much. I know you have to go. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you, Senator. I hope, listeners, that you enjoyed uh, Jen's interview with Senator Murphy as much as she clearly did and we all did listening to it. I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for always stitching together these episodes in uh, such a nice way. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, or Spotify, or, or anywhere else that you like. We're there. And uh, don't forget, if you are interested in having us answer your questions— send us an email at worldly at vox.com. We will try to take an episode to answer listener questions. Also, some of the questions that you've sent, while very, very smart so far, have not been things that we can answer in roughly 10-minute bursts. So try to think of something uh, with a sort of more narrow focus, if you can. It's okay if you can't and just want to ask us a big question anyway. We'll try to do our best in 10 minutes, but we're going to try to get through as many of these questions as we can. Hopefully we hear from you, and uh, we'll definitely talk to you next week.